Hello and welcome back to the Folk Podcast. And we have James back on here from Thor's Outdoors. Uh, it's uh, only been like two episodes since we've had him on here. But the reason that we brought him back on is because all of us have recently seen Northman. And so we were all talking about it already. We're all kind of like losing our minds. So we were like, why don't we just go ahead and record another episode? Uh, so this is that episode. Uh, I know I've already had a review on the channel if you're watching this in video format. Uh, but as I said in that video as well, I wanted to have a longer conversation because there's a lot of stuff we can dig into here. Uh, a lot of little minute details and some stuff I've thought about uh, after seeing it. And I've actually seen it a second time now. Uh, James, have you seen it a second time now? I know you said you were. Uh, yeah, not yet. No, 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 no. Okay, okay, okay. But I'm definitely going to, probably three times. <laughs> well, I actually already had my third time planned because I called my dad and I was like, we got to go see this movie. Like, you got to see it. And so I'm going to yeah. go see it with him before I leave for Europe. Uh, but the way I wanted to start this episode for everybody is I wanted to ask uh, everyone here a question and I'll answer it myself because I think that's going to be kind of the title of this episode. Uh, so Ian, we'll start with you because I always start with you. Uh, why should every pagan watch Northman? Um, honestly, just the honestly, just the imagery that they that they show throughout that movie, as far as the faith and everything like that, is is beautifully well done. And honestly, the accuracy is is amazing to show it in a way, in a very raw way. Um, obviously, how it most likely would have been practiced and everything like that at that time. Um, was just so beautifully well done. And I mean, it's just the the emotions that like I felt from seeing some of the imagery throughout that was just overwhelming at certain points throughout the film. So I think just just the imagery and the depiction of the faith alone is is enough to go and see it. James, we'll move to you. I would say it's probably something around um, possibility the possibility for the faith to drive humans to extreme ends to accomplish their goals. Um, and in this film depicted, I think the power of the faith, unlike any other film or television show that has been produced before about this era, like Vikings of the Last Kingdom, et cetera, et cetera. Um, just the power of the faith, including all of the um, ceremonies they have in the film. Are we giving away spoilers in this or no spoilers? Oh yeah, this will be 100% spoilers. Okay, everyone, this is your spoiler warning because we're talking for <laughs> probably over an hour. There's clearly gonna be spoilers, so. <laughs> that's right, that's right. So just one example is, you know, when the king, by, played by Ethan Hawke, takes his son into this subterranean uh, lair, I believe under, it's a, it's a temple to Odin, and they're doing some kind of magic mushroom psychedelic ceremony down there with Willem Dafoe's uh, character, like, wow, like that's the kind of experiences that you can have in this faith. Those are the kind of ceremonies that you can do. And uh, it th this show just opens up all this possibility that I never even considered in terms of the power of the faith uh, for its motivational properties, but also just how to practice, you know, the faith as well. Caleb? Uh, for me, it was, uh, I don't know, it kind of blew me away in the fact that a, you know, a, a movie, you know, like an actual production could actually, um, I don't know. It stirred things in me, not not in like the normal sense of like, oh, there's this battle and it's badass and it's awesome. But whenever they called out the names of the gods and whenever they performed the rituals and things like that, I, you know, I, you could feel that, or at least I could. And just for for the fact that the, I don't know, the care and the research that they put into it, it's very good depiction and honestly, like one of the best movies I've ever seen. Like I don't. I don't say that a lot. There's not a lot of movies that I would be willing to actually go out and buy a DVD of, but that's one I would. 
So my answer to this question is a little bit more like real world. Uh, if the reason every pagan should go see this movie, and I think every pagan should go see this movie multiple times, is because if you want more movies like this to be made, where movies actually have care for historical accuracy, uh, care for source material, uh, care for the faith, you need to spend money on them. Because what's going to happen is if this money, if this movie doesn't make its money back, other studios aren't going to want to make movies like this. And then Thor, Blood and Thunder, as I called it, like modernity and like boringness or something like that, just because like that movie is going to make millions of dollars and that movie will probably be a success. And so the more that movies like Thor, Blood and Thunder make more money, they will continue to make movies like that. Uh, so I really think it's important for, you know, all of us to support movies like this, because whether you I, I know some people have talked to me and they're like, I, you know, I don't want to go see it because of like the really violent nature. And if you don't like violent movies, you should definitely not see this movie. Uh, but at the same the same time, the imagery alone, you know, <laughs> you know, go buy a ticket just to buy a ticket. I don't know. Uh, but that's like the only reason I would say, like, maybe don't see it is if you don't like violence. But at the same time, like. It's so cool watching uh, such, such hard work uh, in, into historical accuracy and be on screen. Absolutely, that's a very good point, man. You just gotta support it with the dollars because in a free market, you know, things that receive money get uh, repeated in the future. So that, that's a very pragmatic and important point that members of the community should support the hell out of this. I've been trying to, I've already done two posts on this. I'm probably going to do two, two or three more to, to get the message out because you're right, man. It's like, uh, you, you got to support products like this that you want to see repeated in the marketplace for sure. Uh, having said that, I actually did just look it up and it's not making, you know, a ton of money, but of all like the four movies that released this weekend, which was a pretty packed weekend, it's made the most money so far. So it actually beat out uh, Nicolas Cage's movie, at least in the first two days. So uh, that's pretty cool. <laughs> that's awesome. That's good to know. That's good to know. Because like, how did Robert Eggers uh, two other films, The Witch and the Lighthouse do? Because there are I mean, these are all kind of art house films in that genre. Right. And you know, there's not necessarily the same expectations with art house films. Like I know with The Witch and uh, The Lighthouse were, were relatively low budget. I think this film was like an $88 million budget. So that's yeah, it was you know, biggest it's, budget. It's relatively high, biggest budget ever. So, um, so it'll be interesting to, uh, to see what happens. Yeah, I'm looking that up right now. Uh, because yeah, I think a movie is like, it's like Adam Sandler. The reason Adam Sandler's movies keep getting made is because they're dirt cheap and they usually make decent money. Like yep. if you get a 20 times return on your $4 million investment, they're going to keep doing it. Uh, but yeah, the moment you start asking for the big money and it doesn't succeed. Okay, so The Witch uh, did really well uh, for what it was. It only had a $4 million budget and it made $40.4 So that's a 10 times return on investment. Uh, the Lighthouse did not have a good return. Uh, its budget was $11 million, which is still small, but its box office returns were only $18.3 There you go. And the interesting thing about this niche in the industry, you know, me, myself, having worked in this industry for basically the past 10 years, is that there are certain projects that what you said, Jacob, is absolutely true, right? The bigger the return, the more attractive it is, the more likely it's going to get made in the future. Simultaneously, there are also projects that get made that are just for almost pure artistic reasons. Like certain production houses like A24 will make things, even if they're not going to make any money, but the probability that they're going to win awards or other accolades um, is very high. So there are definitely like niche projects out there in the industry that do get made for reasons other than than monetary return but obviously the if it also gets a monetary return that's even better right that's the best case scenario and i mean like you kind of pointed it out too james on one of your posts like kind of going into just the the amount of care and accuracy that they went with this movie obviously 
just kind of reflects the bigger budget with just the small details as far as like on uh the king's like helmet and everything with the engravings and stuff like that like you said it yourself you know in most films like they want to keep the helmets off and stuff like that even though it's not historically accurate because only in you know most part in a psycho would walk around in a battlefield without a helmet on that you know that starts to cost more money and you know more funding is required and stuff like that and i know a lot of people regarding this film have really really given a lot of of kudos to the costume team because of the historical accuracy and just the amount of research that they did for this film i know that is a that's been a regular talking point for a lot of people that whether it's critics or just people that have seen it you know it's one of the biggest talking points right now is just the historical accuracy with that absolutely man and you raise a really good point about helmets like wear your fucking helmets guys you know they should always <laughs> listen i i wear my fucking viking helmet when i'm in whole foods buying my organic eggs okay well it sounds so, like you always rent it to crazy people at whole foods anyways i do i attract weird people because of the helmet that i'm wearing right but i mean the fact that all these friggin movies and tv shows like you know the last kingdom vikings guys going into battle with no helmet it's like are you kidding me man like what a joke and you know again like i understand it's more difficult to see the characters faces and all that kind of stuff but yeah the the historic the the attention to detail was just incredible in the film and you know 88 million dollars for say 2 hours of content if you compare that to a season of vikings or uh, the last kingdom which i believe have like roughly between an 80 and 100 million dollar uh budget so that's 100 million dollars in a tv show that's spread over 10 episodes or 8 episodes so you just can't pack as much detail and quality into every minute of the screen right in the same way so robert eggers you know part of it is he did amazing research and i guess his co-writer was an icelandic poet right who probably has a lot of this background already but also you know just having that financial horse horsepower of being able to spend the money and you can cram more detail and quality into every minute and every inch of that screen that television shows just can't do but i mean it's just above and beyond like the little i actually looked at ethan hawks uh, a picture of it his helmet and I think there's actually like on the nose piece, I think it's like it's Odin that's carved. I was thinking there. the same thing. Like when I watched your your little post about it, I was looking, I was like, is that Odin? Like right on the nose, like the bridge of the nose peak guard like that. I was like, I kept looking at it a couple of times. I think you might be right. It's Odin, baby. So it's just it's like, wow, that 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 is unreal. Um, but but Jacob, you were actually taking notes, right? Like um in the first time that you saw it. And uh <laughs> <laughs> That, that's that's awesome man uh what, no, what, like, what, let me what read were you... you noticing like in terms of uh the the the, the religious accuracy uh in in, in the movie? well let me just run you through my notes because they get kind of manic towards like some of the more brutal scenes like you can tell like right here like one of the crazy scenes was happening because i was just writing on top of things because i couldn't see so yeah <laughs> let's see here uh start was a prose many references to gods outfits outfits will make nerds happy speechless uh, speech is poetry Temple was designed properly. Hardcore religion. Have them all, quote. <laughs> yeah. Heart imagery. Man, I love the poetic language. Brutal, double underline. Simple revenge story. At um at its heart, Odin ritual was dope. Oh my God, the Odin ritual. Whoa, bro, what the fuck? Holy shit, Berserker <laughs> scene was dope. <laughs> Stream of consciousness from, from Jacob. That, all right. I mean, that honestly, like, is a good way of just kind of like how the whole movie went. You know, it was just like, oh, 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 shit. And then it was like, oh, okay. It kind of like just bellowed a little bit. And then it was just like, 
Oh, I literally man. wrote the bite. Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah, because yep. like we, I was yeah. like, oh, the scene's finally over. It's starting to end, and all of a sudden he's. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, I was like, holy shit, <laughs> what is uh, happening? <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I, there was so much historical accuracy and, and just everything was so well done, even like, you know, tactically in the fight scenes and the battle mm -hmm. scenes, like, you know, Ian mentioned in the first scene, the guys are all wearing the helmets, freaking awesome. One thing I would think I'd point out that I didn't think made sense was that when they were doing, I think this is maybe act two, when they were doing the raid on the Slavic settlement in Kiev and mm -hmm. Rus or whatever, and I think they had maybe 20 guys or maybe 30 guys assaulting this fortified settlement. And I understand they want to show like, you know, the berserker uh, ceremony and they're all going in there with, with their wolf skins and stuff like that. But if those guys had access to chain mail and helmets and armor sending and say you say you only have 20 or 30 men, it's like you would not send all of your guys completely unarmored against a fortified settlement now it looks better right when they're in the wolf skins and everything it's really cool so i think from what i understand of reading a lot of historical sources like a lot about the berserker you know battalions or units it's a lot about you know inspiring the other troops it's about giving you know driving terror into your enemy so if you got 30 guys maybe you got five guys jacked on uh on uh, magic mushrooms or whatever it happens to be right doing the berserker thing but all the other guys should be in fuck totally chain mailed up right when they're going against this fortified so so when i saw that there was a slight like cringe uh you know you know, a little twinge uh twitch that i had but other than that everything else was was fucking amazing did you guys also find that with that did that hit you on that scene like wait a minute would i really it just so shitless? happens that yeah. after uh, i had already planned this before i watched northman to do a berserker episode so i was doing berserker research and like shapeshifter research literally right after watching this which was like honestly really cool and i just made the video for it yesterday and just edited it today uh so in the late viking age or in the viking age in general berserkers were actually used as the initial shock troops because they were there to inspire fear in the enemy like almost yep. like really aggressive pawns and then afterwards you would send in your normal soldiers after the enemy was kind of softened up in fear and they were also there was this mythology behind them they were immune to swords and so they often like really inspired fear in the enemies that knew who they were because they were like well we can't kill these guys um oh caleb's got the shield down. No, i brought the, i brought this right here out because i this goes like we're talking on the berserkers and stuff like that now so like whenever i was doing some research stuff on it like everybody always talks about how they would bite on their shields yeah as a way yeah. to like spread that fear and see you know uh <laughs> frighten the enemy the whole thing was more from what i've read and things i've listened to from people that were they're i guess they're more researchers or historians whatever you want to call it but it was more of like having the shield up like this and then they would they would do their you know their beating on it and uh do the the howling the growling and whatever chance that they would do and that would be that was like the shield body this you know holding up the shield like this and then doing that yeah and yeah, then the another thing i saw was like a lot like that which i were talking about this. the the way that they depicted the um the way they depicted the way that the battle was how the ritual was like that would have been more like the ritual guard for like the changing ritual of putting on like becoming going into the, uh, the beast form um but everything i've seen it's more like whenever they went into battle that they were more of like the elite shock troops you know the uh if you want to think about like kind of like house carls you know they would have been the most elite troops that would have like protected the king or jarl or whoever well and I yeah know it's, it's a there's a very very quick little shot during that raid um where once all these berserkers breach over the wall 
there's at least two or three of them that go towards where the gate is of that wall and they open it to allow the rest of the troops to come in it's a very very quick little snippet um where it's it's uh focused on alexander skarsgård's character as he's just kind of like slowly walking through the village off like kind of behind him you see a couple of them open up the gate to allow the rest of the the normal troops to come in so it's not like they necessarily sent just their berserkers and like their elite troops and they take the city like that village on their own so yeah it's a very very quick little pan and you see them like knock the the board out of there and open it and then some guys on horse back start rolling oh that's it's what a it very was. very quick Wait, did you not see the horse uh, people in horseback riding it james horseback riding uh you know what for, for parts of this movie i'm not gonna be out i had such a big erection that i my eyes were like <laughs> rolling back in my brain because i was just so jazzed you know there, there were so so many short snippets i may have missed but uh i was pretty jacked up i was pretty jacked up on adrenaline but um yeah i mean if there were other guys because from my my view view of it i thought there was only the berserkers i'm like wait a minute that doesn't make sense but if there's other guys in chainmail then yeah okay then then that makes more sense the other yeah, really amazing boring. thing about that uh that scene is it from a production value standpoint following Skarsgård as he's running up towards the wall and then he's climbing up the wall and then getting on top of it that's all done in one single continuous shot and that would be extremely difficult to do. Like, there's no way you could do that for television because you'd have, probably have to do it over and over and over again. And you might even have to create some kind of track or rail where the camera's actually going along. Might be on some kind of boom arm or, or a combination of the two. But that whole thing in one shot was like, wow, that, that's incredible that they, that they did that that way. So Yeah, uh, I actually, when I went back and watched it the second time, I because that scene in particular, I was like, this is probably like, this is the most complicated scene by far to shoot because you had yeah. so many moving pieces. Um, and there's an interview with Alexander Skarsgård talking about, I think that specific scene. And he was like, you know, one person does one thing wrong. You have to reset the whole scene. Like, yeah. it's obscene, you know, like one horse looks the wrong way. All of a sudden, everyone's got to take all the blood off of them, all the dirt. You got to put out the fires like, you know, <laughs> it's, it's crazy. Uh, but in that scene, I counted it uh, because anytime you have a tracking shot like that, anytime it rolls in front of something, usually they do that to have a safety net where it's like if they fuck up, they can go back to that safety net and then shoot from there. Mm -hmm. It only had two. So they only had two mm -hmm. tries to make that thing work. And I'm just like, that's insane. Yeah. 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 It is crazy, man. It's crazy. So, yeah, just everything about it is just, it's so, it's so freaking well done. It's yeah, so something I noticed off of like the, uh, Oh, sorry. I was just no, going to say, like, but before we move off from like talking on the, the berserkers and that that ritual and everything, uh, that was one of one of my like most favorite moments of that of that whole movie was whenever they were there before that battle around the fire and when it had the uh, the old man there that was you know the ritual leader or the war band leader or whatever he had the uh, yeah <laughs> no, but when it, we, he had the he had the helmet that with the uh, you know the horns that. You know, we see all of those ambulance and uh, I'm guessing some of them are like belt buckles, things like that. But, you know, we know that classic, uh, you know, Odin head with the horns coming off of it. It's, I think it's supposed to be ravens. But I love that they put that little touch and that detail in there. It was great. Right on. Yeah, um, so I've talked about this pretty extensively now because I did the review and then I did the Berserker video uh, where I talked about it in both ones. Uh, the thing that really just baffles my mind, Caleb, for you know just you and me in particular, the uh, Odin ritual we performed at Ohio, uh, Ohio Yule last year. I mean, it's to me is just crazy how similar what they depicted in there was and how similar we created an Odin ritual. Now, it wasn't like an Ulfendar ritual or a Berserker ritual, but the fact that we came to that conclusion through research and practice 
you know, it's crazy that, you know, we kind of developed the same thing with the same effect. Obviously, we weren't there to like raid a village, but like this, <laughs> the, the energy that that ritual created was obviously very Berserker like. Yeah, I mean, the, the whole, I mean, my, my whole purpose with the warriors was, you know, to bring out that most primal part of themselves. And that's kind of been, I guess, going back to like the beginning, like whenever I did my first open ritual, like that was the whole point of it. It just didn't pan out exactly right, you know. Caleb, no. <laughs> this happened the last time we were doing a video recording. I know, right? With you instead. Oh, uh -oh. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, Caleb died, everybody. So uh... <laughs> <laughs> his uh, village is being raided. Right. <laughs> the moon got the sun got covered over by the moon. Oh no, it's time. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Man, like. Um, yeah, like when they started howling like wolves, like if I was in there with a Oof. bunch of other pagan people, I would have been like, like with yeah. everybody else. <laughs> yeah. It, oh, man. Yeah. Well, it's like when you asked me, you know, how I felt about the, the bite scene in particular. Yeah, that got to me because I was just like watching it because I, you know, it, they show a bit of that in the trailer, at least when he howls, but they only show him howling once. I was like, all right, cool. Here comes that scene. Like, I'm kind of prepared for it. I was like, okay, this is pretty savage. He howls the first time, and then he starts, he just keeps getting more and more intense, and then I was just like, oh, no, like, I can't do it. I'm in a theater. Like, oh, God, it was such a fight to just not, yeah, start doing the same thing, man. It's And oh, that's the gosh. end why you don't watch trailers for, for movies or, or, or TV shows that you want to see. At least that's my personal philosophy. It's like, if there's yeah. a movie I know I want to see, I'm like, don't want to see anything about it because I want it to be all fresh. Do you know what I mean? Bro. And I mean, it's like, well, but I can't wait. And, you know, it's up to you. It's yeah. subjective, obviously. But for me, I just like, no trailers, no trailers. Well, no trailers. So you I went full raw. Like you didn't know, you didn't know anything. It's raw dogging it, man. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> well, when I went with uh, Casey, I don't know I called what Casey. happened. <laughs> well, welcome back. Uh, we're talking about raw dogging. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, so yeah, like I called Casey like literally half an hour after finishing it. And I was like, Casey, you got to see this movie. Let's go. And then uh, she was like, totally. So we went the next day and we're in the line for the theater. And I was like, so have you seen any trailers? She's like, no. And I'm like, wait, what do you know about this movie? She's like, well, up to last night, I thought it was like a movie version of the ne the Netflix series, The Norseman. I was like, oh, oh. God. I was like, so you thought this was like a comic oh, until like last night. Yeah. <laughs> and then she's like, yeah, I started hearing you talk about how intense it was. And she was like, I didn't think it was the comedy anymore. Oh my dude, that's so funny. That cracks me up so much. That's like almost like the rawest that you can get with almost well, saying that. Oh, dude, she knowing... cried like a baby. Cried like well, yeah. a baby. Not surprised, oh, man. I'm not there's surprised. That, there's at least eight distinctive scenes in that throughout that film that I can that I can recall. Like that as soon as I like they happened, my eyes are just like, oh, we're gonna start leaking. I'm just like, what is happening? Right. You're not allowed now? to cry. Like Amelis. No. Right. Single tear. <laughs> Yeah, it was. Oh man. Now I will like, say, yeah. I shed a tear at the end, though. Like honestly, the second watch, oh, yeah. not the first time. Second one, I did actually. Like when he died and like saw the vision of Valhalla, I shed a tear. I'm not gonna lie. Oh, absolutely, extremely emotional. I wouldn't be surprised, even if you're, if you're, you know, oh, guys are like, I never cry in movies. Fuck, man, Th this this is intense. This this is intense. That last battle. I mean, yeah, we're skipping right here to the end, but like honestly, that last battle wasn't very long, but it was intense. Yeah. And then just the way that they ended it, you know, where it was just that last scene of the, with the Valkyrie, and then all of a sudden it's just black screen silence. <laughs> You're just sitting there like, what the fuck? 
Yeah. Yeah. And it was like, okay. Uh, like, Absolutely. Uh, well, I feel like the energy and the intensity of the entire film is like really steep in the beginning. And then it's like up, 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 up. Then right at the end, it's like boom. And it just takes yeah. you out. Well, I guess for, for people and, and, listening, and they, they can't see you. that. But yeah, it drops you. It drops you. It took so. you to the point of completion and then said no. Yeah. And you're like, <laughs> I mean, I'm sitting there like, <laughs> I know for me and Ian, I don't know so much. I don't know about you, James, or I don't, I don't remember asking Jacob like how you. No, we lost him again. Oh, we lost him. Again. Oh no. No. Oh no. No no. Oh. Oh. I heard a little snippet from him. What? No. Oh. <laughs> we have technology. Do, does Caleb have uh, like satellite? Is he satellite connected? Or, no, he just lives in Tennessee. Hardware? So. <laughs> I just blame Tennessee. <laughs> It's the rocks and the poor dental care and the Mountain Dew. <laughs> <laughs> the poor care, <laughs> they go hand in hand. <laughs> or it's one of his kids just like sitting with a Wi-Fi router, like beating Chewing? it with a stick or something. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, uh, I thought it was very, very interesting how they split it up into five different uh, acts. Because generally, mm -hmm. uh, generally, I mean, any good story does have five acts in it, right? Now, some people say it's three acts. But, you know, three acts can be split into five acts if it's properly structured. And splitting it uh, very definitively like that probably made it easier to write. But then it's also for the audience. It gives mm -hmm. you those clear breaks. And it just makes it, uh, I think it makes it better even as, as a viewer, you know, to give that little little pause. Even if you don't know anything about act structure or why it's important, uh, that, that, those kind of things, I think it was, it was, it was definitely powerful for, for, for viewers. Um, but uh, that, uh, did they give, did, did they translate what, I forget, were they translating what the meaning was for those, like, is it Elder Futark that they were using? That was the Younger Futark. It was Younger Futark. Younger Futark. Which means I have no idea how to read it because Younger Futark's whack. Yeah. <laughs> it's weird because it's just noises. It's like, it's audible sounds, not lettering. So like, uh, you know, uh, what is it? Like, I, I honestly can't remember. But one of the runes, it's like, you don't say a letter sound. You, you sound, make a sound like, ah. And so you just, ah, e, ah, e. You know, and that's how you have to like, sounded out so it's it's weird <laughs> yeah yeah and speaking of sounds i mean the dialogue like you said jacob in your in your crazy notes was incredible it was like poetry and uh you know people may have spoken like that at the time particularly you know elites mm -hmm. or people that were quote unquote more educated you know back then that had done a lot of reading or schooling whatever the the equivalent was back then but the dialogue was freaking incredible well, yeah, if you look at, um, like, I've been doing a lot of work into, like, Heimskringla, Sax Grammaticus, the history of the Danes, and a lot of, like, the really old, like, stories of the kings and stuff like that. And it'll have quotes from things that people supposedly said. And then, yeah, it's very poetic, um, even if it has, like, the Old Norse. Because Old Norse doesn't have a lot of, like, additives. So in English, we have a lot of additives to what we say to, to go add what we mean. But I would, I would say that the Old Norse language, from my understanding, does not have a lot of different words. They use... The, yeah. A very set finite amount and they kind of stick to that mm -hmm. and then of course with like the uh you know uh what is it the kinnings you know using different mm, yeah. uh you know analogies of something you know, like odin's name being raven lord you know or raven god or rafa the ghost you know so they would do things like that interesting interesting well i think it probably made a big impact uh in terms of the screenwriting having that icelandic poet as the co-writer right because that person is naturally wired obviously to be writing in that style and then eggers is like such a fantastic writer himself so it's just like such a such a power team but i don't think like 
you know, no matter how much research you do, uh, like a director like Eggers, who's not necessarily familiar with the source material before, you know, starting this project, having an Icelandic poet who probably grew up, right, learning these mythologies and studying. Yeah, I think his name was Sion. Or their name is Sion. I don't know. Sion. Yeah, I followed the guy on Instagram. Uh, that he, he seems like a super interesting character, but you just can't make up for that, right? Someone who spent their entire mm-hmm. life immersed in the source material. So when you're writing, you know, because they'll have some kind of like, oh, yeah, well, this connects to that and we can do this in this scene. You know what I mean? Like, if you sit down and say, well, I'm going to do really hardcore research for three or three or four months, it's not the same as being with someone who's been in it their whole life. So, yeah, see, I had really cool. I had no idea that he was an Icelandic poet. That that is news to me. So it does make a lot of sense with a lot of just the way that things were the the dialogue in particular, um, you know, within very key points. You know that mm. it was like poetry. You know, obviously some of the more like mundane conversations that characters have with each other obviously were just relatively normal. But there was yeah some of those very key conversations where you're just like, like Jacob, you've said like it have this written as a saga would be phenomenal because that is almost how a lot of the main dialogue between characters and key points was like so it's just yeah it was absolutely amazing which makes now sense to me now because i had no idea that he, they had that kind of backing with him uh so yeah. caleb just texted he's out he's i guess he just tried to get in it's just not working so oh, he's, no. he's stepping oh, out yeah which sucks well james you gotta beat him briefly <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah yeah, yeah. True, true, well true, honestly true. i think he was uh like for some reason he was like taking away from like the zoom in general because everyone was a little more laggy when he was on and then he, the moment his thing kicked him off like we all smoothed out so i don't know what kind of things the mountain dew internet is doing out there but <laughs> it's doing something uh so yeah oh i was just looking God. up to see on here uh and interestingly enough he is the one of the founding members of the neo surrealist group uh that is stationed in Reykjavik so like you know for any of you uneducated swine surrealists basically like Salvador Dali uh so (laughs) (laughs) uneducated swines Uh, I feel personally attacked on that one (laughs) yeah so the dichotomy between surrealists (laughs) art student art school student (laughs) let me let me acquire my mustache. One of the lines that I remember that really stuck out to me um, towards the end in terms of this like poetic prose of the dialogue was when um, I forget what his uh, adversary, the, 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 the antagonist says to uh, Am- Amleth, uh, he's like, meet me by the, you know, lava flow at, oh, yeah, at the midnight or something like that, at the gates of hell. Yeah. And then his response was not just like, yes or no. He's like, at the gates of hell at midnight meet you will i right like yeah, like yeah. very shakespearean i'm like yeah that was a fucking cool way of saying like yes you know like that that, that was really really cool well even that scene okay. in general like when uh fjolnir walks in and pauses yeah. and just looks to his left looks yeah. to his right yeah, and just accepts yeah, it yeah. like there was no emotion on his face it was it was almost like he knew it was going to happen it was like it's almost like he had been told in a faded like in a prophecy that like the son of you know uh i forget his dad's name uh of, yeah amulet's dad would kill mm-hmm. his children and his wife and it's so, like he almost just like it's like yep this was faded 
And what's I, so cool about that is that that's that philosophical notion of like fate, right? Like if your mm -hmm. fate is predetermined, like nothing will necessarily phase you. Is that a more pragmatic way of walking through life? It's almost like a stoic way of doing it. It's like whatever gets thrown my way has meant to happen and I'm going to accept it and just move forward as opposed to being like when something bad happens, right? You're freaked out and you get depressed and all. And, you know, like it's it's very interesting, the whole concept of fate throughout the entire, uh, the entire show, um, the entire movie. And it was interesting that the, what was his name? Fjolnir? Fjolnir, Fjolnir yeah. yeah. Fjolnir, it was clear that him and his people, they they worship Frere, right? Um, he was not an Odin worshiper. And that doesn't, you don't get, like Frere and Freya like don't come up, or at least in terms of a patron god. I think in any of the other shows, in, yeah, I guess in, in terms of a patron god, I thought that was very interesting that they did that. I would, right? say, I would say, you know, because again, I just did my research for Frere too. It's like everything lined up, honestly. I didn't plan this. Uh, <laughs> I just did my research for Frere and he has very little written source material um, at the surface. So if you just do a basic search for him, you're not going to find that much. He doesn't seem like a prominent deity, but historically we know he was one of the most prominent deities. Uh, so again, it just shows that, you know, they understood the mythology because they could have gone with Thor. You know, they could have gone yeah. with Loki. Everyone knows Thor and Loki, but they went with Frere. Like, uh, yeah. So I think much this, more interesting. Yeah. And I think this was, and again, the minute detail, like on Fjolnir's banner is Boars, which is a symbol of Frere. Oh, oh shit. I didn't oh, even think of that. Yeah. Up on that. Cool. And Fjolnir's name is actually within Saxo Grammaticus is the history dames know, or in Heimskringla. It's either one of those. Uh, the son of Frere that takes over the front of throne after him and Uppsala was Fjolnir. Oh, oh shit! Interesting. So that does kind of play into <laughs> the the theory that you and I discussed about how it was essentially uh, about of champions of yeah. one being Odin's champion and one being Freyr's champion, being Amleth Odin's and Fjolnir being Freyr's. Yep. Throughout this movie, like the gods playing gods, basically. That's so cool! Oh, oh my shit. god! That does I bet if you. If you went back and you looked at uh, Fjolnir's like helmet at, at, towards the beginning, I wouldn't be surprised if he's got like a boar somewhere on his helmet. You know, if they're going to the kind of depths that they're going, if yeah. going back watching the second time, now that, you know, Jacob, you mentioned he's got boar on a boar on the flag. Other little hints, like you could probably watch this film 10 times and discover little things like this, right? That they've yeah. probably hidden, hidden throughout there. But that's yeah, super like interesting about Frere. Yeah, because uh, Freyr's main uh, symbols were the boar, the sword, and the phallus were his main mm -hmm. symbols. And obviously, there is there's a massive phallus on that Freyr's On statue. that statue, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> As there uh, should be. As yeah. there should be. I love it. <laughs> well, and I, I, I had to point this out to Ian because it's such a quick line that it kind of is muffled when uh, Amleth is, like, uh, hung up by Fjolnir after he is caught. Like, he says something along the lines of, my god of wisdom will destroy your god of erections. Does he really? Oh yeah. shit! Yeah, okay. yeah, and it's so brief because he's like he's like splitting blood out, and he's like, "My god, my god, Odin will destroy your god of erections," and then it immediately cuts to like the next thing that was said. So it was so quick, and I was like, "Did he just say that?" <laughs> yeah, that's so fascinating because that's something like on my first watch, I didn't pick up on it. I didn't think yeah. about it at all. The fact that like these are two instruments of the gods playing out in reality or in Midgard. Right, that they're both putting their chips behind like two different racehorses, almost. You know what I mean? Which we we see in uh, the the stories as well, because in uh, mm -hmm. Grimness uh, Grimness Mall, uh, Odin and Frigg both choose uh, two sons to basically be their champion, and it's like a competition between the two to see who's the better king. That's so cool. 
That's yeah. so cool. Yeah, you guys, after this conversation, I feel like you both are going to yeah. be like, well, I got to go fucking see it. I'm going to see it right now. <laughs> oh, yeah. I'm going to go see notepads, my, boys. Yeah, I'm going to go see my second, second time, either Monday or Tuesday. So, yeah, I think I might actually bring a notebook this time and see what yeah, other notes and stuff I pick up on. And like one thing that's like just for the the imagery that I really, really, really loved kind of also tying into what we're talking about with like just the idea of fate is basically they're the representation of like the family tree and that family line that they mm. depicted multiple times throughout the film. And one thing that was pointed out to me was that if you look at each person as they're on that branch, they're holding a red, like basically their own fate within mm-hmm. one of their hands to some degree as it goes up the next line yeah absolutely what was so interesting about that family tree there is like and also the actions of amalef um in his life was that he was def- you know there's this concept of deferring gratification right people who mm-hmm. are able to defer gratification for longer periods of time are more successful in reality right because the longer you work right the, the bigger the payoff etc cetera, etc cetera. <clears throat> and Evolution, I've heard evolutionary biologists talk about this, like the best kind of gratification delaying is when you actually delaying your gratification until you, the next generation, right? So like parents working really hard, saving all this money just so their parent, like so their kid can be maybe able go to go to university or something like that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so was Amalef not doing that? He was actually delaying his gratification until the next generation. He could have got stayed on that boat with his super hot new wife uh and, right. Joy, <laughs> and gone off to the uh whatever i the orkney islands right and lived out the mm-hmm. rest of his life but the probability that the progeny of uh fjolnir would come and hunt down his kids and or his wife and or him or fjolnir himself is just very high so he's like you know what i am setting up it's like it they visually showed it like as soon as he saw in his mind it's like wow it's like one of my kids like i'm gonna have two kids with this woman she's pregnant we're all we're all set up it's like one of them is going to become a queen. I don't know if he realized that or not, but he's like, I need to go finish my work because I already know that I'm going to live on to the future through my children. I need yeah. to finish off this work. And that was so fucking interesting because from an evolutionary perspective, it is in everyone's best interest that your previous ancestors lived in that way in that they were delaying gratification to a point that it is bestowing greater gifts upon future generations, right? I think in, in pragmatically, that's very difficult to do because you can't just live like a hellish life and have no you know, right. joy or anything whatsoever. Yeah. But finding that balance where, yes, I am having enough joy, but I'm also setting up my future progeny uh, for success by delaying gratification in some way now. So that was super interesting to me, seeing the visuals of the family tree there and how Amaleth was conducting himself. He was like, you know, I think re- really thinking about those multiple generations. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, you're saying that like my grandfather worked in a steel factory for 35 years. Do you think he liked working in a steel factory for 35 years? Fuck no. But my dad (laughs) went to college and now my dad, you know, is like a senior vice president of computer design. You know, he's like this, uh, basically the highest computer design title at this large, like multi-billion dollar company. And it's just like, you know, he earned that, but also he couldn't have done that if my my grandfather didn't delay that gratification and my grandfather didn't slave away in a steel factory for 35 years. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because your grandfather could have also even got like a, a lower paying job that was less stressful, less potentially damaging on his health and working in a steel factory and uh, had more fun in his life. And he could have drank more, right? And partied more, but he didn't because he set up, you know, your father to, to do what he did. So he didn't have any it's... problems drinking more, but he solved this. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. But it's, it's interesting to think about. It's like, 
what Amalith did, it's like, it is in your best interest, like now, again, that all of your previous ancestors behaved in that way. So should you not also behave in that way yourself? Because you're going to hope that they're, you know, because it's like, arguably, the way that you live on forever is through your children, right? So would you not want to set them up the best that you can? Right. Well, and I mean, the whole plot of the story is, you know, a father telling his son, basically, your entire destiny is to avenge my death. You know, like establishing that from his very early age. And like you said, you know, if he didn't kill Fionnir and his prodigy, like eventually one of his family line, they just know it's their destiny to kill Amalus children because it's like, well, yeah. they killed my father. It doesn't matter the reason. It's just, this is my destiny. And I, I know Crawford mentions it in his, uh, like his beginning of his poetic Edda is a lot of people in our modern age don't understand the values that were held by the Viking Age people in prior of if, you know, someone came and killed your brother, you were oath sworn basically by life and death to go avenge that brother. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I was questioning in my mind though, too, <laughs> Like the 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 utility of that uh, legal tool, I believe it's a legal tool, not a cultural tool, right? The the wehrgild or the wehrgild or however you say it, because I know it was present in certain societies and not others. This might be more of an Anglo-Saxon thing or like a, a a Germanic, like continental Germanic tribe thing. But like Jacob and Ian, do you guys know how the wehrgild concept would work into this? Because from my understanding, it's like you know a tool where if you do kill someone's family to stop that you know multi generational feud from going forward you just pay that price, right? Whatever it is, like it's a steep price, right? So you end it there, but you have to pay a big sum of money to the other family, but that prevents this kind of violence, right? From going on down in the yeah, future. Yeah, that definitely sounds like an Anglo-Saxon yeah. invention to like quell infighting. Yeah, <laughs> paying with money, yeah. Because I, I think, you know, it's brought up quite a few times in uh, Bernard Cornwell's yeah, The Last Kingdom, you know, or the, the Warlord Chronicles series, uh, the, the concept of Guild in the, I guess, 800s. Uh, in Anglo-Saxon, uh, you know, you know, Britain, but that's a very pragmatic tool again, because if every time somebody kills somebody else's brother, you've got these intergenerational feuds. I mean, that's tough for society, right? It's like, yeah. it, even from a pragmatic perspective of we're reducing manpower here, folks, uh, by having people kill each other off, right? Well, yeah, so if I was sitting here like uh, some guy, my grandfather fought in the 60s, I have to go find his children and fight and them, kill them now. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, you know, what does that benefit anyone? <laughs> Guys, we won't be releasing Wisdom of Odin podcast this week because I have to go kill this guy's grandkids. Uh, <laughs> I have no idea why. <laughs> I found them on Facebook. <laughs> Oh, oh, Facebook no. would make finding your uh, your family's enemies so much easier. Oh, shit, man. It'd be a disaster. Yeah. Fjolnir, <laughs> where are you? <laughs> feud, feud killings. Oh, man. Oh, oh God. Oh, we could call it feud book. Feud book. That's oh, right. Like... Feud talk. Feud talk. Yeah. Oh, yeah, gosh. Yeah. Oh, I mean, that's basically all TikTok is, is feud talk. But, <laughs> <laughs> but obviously, you know, the Wear Guild didn't, it's, it appears like it didn't exist. It didn't exist in that in that time and place. Right. Yeah, it might be a cultural thing too, as well, um, to a certain degree. Because yeah, I feel like that kind of sounds almost similar to like a home game kind of a thing, um, but obviously different in its its, its intentions and what you, justifies you guys, it. You guys want some fun Kentucky history? Yes. So they they had home gang here. Like it was part of Kentucky culture. It wasn't called a home gang. I forget what it was actually called. Uh, but the it was so lawless here in Kentucky up until like the 1900s. Uh, there just wasn't any established local law. So most people th handled disputes. I mean, this is where you get like Hatfields and McCoy stuff. Um, mm -hmm. But it was a very common practice. If you had a feud with a with a neighbor, you would just meet somewhere in the middle of the woods and fight each other to the death. 
and then whoever won got the other one's property. <laughs> like, Holy and, and there's shit. like a whole cultural thing around it where like it was common to grow out your thumb, uh, your thumb fingernail, because you could use that to pop their eyes out if you had to fight them. <laughs> so like it was <laughs> savage. <laughs> That's insane, man. Can Holy you imagine shit. showing up like on a first date with on, like, you know, from Tinder? <laughs> And they're like, they're like what, what's with the weird, you know, thumbnails? It's like, well, in case I need to pop out the eyes of my mortal enemy, it's like, what? <laughs> Mate with that's me? incredible. <laughs> <laughs> what? It's like, oh, I gotta go. Uh, but yeah. uh, so home gang, I, I've never heard of that before. Like, it, what, what is that? Is that feud? Is that like an, another term for feud? It was yeah, just, like, a, it was just a fights to like, like a settle duel. Dispute. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it was like duel. a duel to settle. Yeah, like a duel to settle the dispute. Uh, if somebody wronged you then yeah it was a fight to the death basically and then the winner would basically get everything that the loser had is that a nordic thing or a continental germany thing i don't know i don't know how far spread that is yeah because in the united United states the biggest ethnic group in terms of ancestry is is german it's not english right in canada it's english and french uh Mm -hmm. but in germany sorry in, in the united states it's germany by by a wide margin i think there's something like I may be getting this wrong, but I think it's like 50 million people have German ancestry. It's uh, it's crazy. So I'm not surprised in Kentucky, many of the early settlers may have been German. No, mostly like, uh, um, settlers here in Kentucky were German and Irish. German and Irish. There you go. Interesting. <laughs> <laughs> wow. It's almost like this is what you get when you combine German and Irish people together. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Ginger Lord over here. Well, uh, you know, it's funny. Uh, I think ginger people, are the last people you can make fun of, just like no holds barred in society. You know, you can't get canceled for it. Whoa. Sorry, Jacob, for announcing that to the public. But he I'm not being called a ginger. I'm not a ginger. As you can clearly see, my eyebrows are blonde. Oh. And my hair is strawberry blonde. Thank you very much. It just so oh. happens my beard is red. Please, man, please. You're Ron Weasley ginger through and through, man. Hey, no. I'm, I'm like a, I'm like a half ginger if at best. <laughs> yeah, I'm proud no, of because my beard comes through red and I'm like, fuck yeah, I'm part ginger. Yes. Well, again, whenever I travel around, you know, I'm about to travel again. That's the thing everyone points out, especially the people in Mexico. They, they're they weirded out by that beard. You know, whoa, Mr. Firebeard, what's up, Holmes? You know, like, <laughs> like I've literally heard that like multiple times in Mexico. Firebeard, that's awesome. That's awesome. Red. <laughs> well, I mean, Thor, right, from what we know, was a redhead, right? Except yeah. thanks, you know, Marvel for casting a blonde uh in, in the character but it's right, okay they're about correct? to cast a woman instead <laughs> oh my god oh my god that's a whole other topic of conversation i know right but uh yeah this this film and thank god this is like a counterbalance to that which is like you know new age taking the myth, myths into weird areas and uh doing strange things with them and you know people well, that don't necessarily like, have any connection to the source material like uh taika watiti well like i look at um like Star Wars, the new Star Wars movies and like the old Star Wars movies. And then this, this is a classic hero's journey mm-hmm. and a hero's mm-hmm. journey is often tragic, tragic because the hero has to make sacrifices. And you see that with, you know, even Darth Vader, the story of Darth Vader is a tragic journey. The story of like Luke Skywalker is a tragic journey. Uh, but the, uh, the journey of Ray Skywalker, Ray Palpatine was not a tragic journey. She beat her destiny and basically said, uh, and chose her own destiny. Like, I'm not a Palpatine. I'm a Skywalker. Yeah, like yeah, no, yeah. that's not a hero's journey. That's like a selfish, yeah. like little, like self-entitled person's journey. <laughs> she didn't have to sacrifice anything. She like the guy, like Kylo had to die. <laughs> like what? <laughs> yeah. yeah. 
For sure. Well, I mean, unfortunately, I think there's a lot of uh, idea, ideological art being made uh, in Hollywood now, which uh, thankfully the Northman is not. Like you said, it's a truly mythological tale. And I think the difference is, is that in a mythological story, you don't straw man the counter argument to whatever your themes are, right? So if a huge theme of uh, this movie is revenge, you have to kind of simultaneously paint the picture of, well, what's the counter argument to like revenge is good, right? And I think one of those is when he's diving off that boat and his wife, beautiful, gorgeous wife, who I would totally accept as my wife, feels out there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, is revenge really fucking awesome? He could have sailed off on the boat and, you know, spent his whole life with his kids and maybe he's making the wrong choice. I mean, that mm. really set up. It's like, well, that's the freaking counter argument to revenge is awesome. Well, yeah, and then he had to go that, kill his mother and his brother, like both of his brothers. His half brother, yeah. yeah. All that jazz. It's like, well, will, will, will uh, what's his name? Fafnir? No, no, not Fafnir. Fjolnir. 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 It was like, will he really come after him? But I think, so that's a, what makes it a mythological tale and why I think it's appealing to a huge audience because whatever you believe in, right? If you believe in revenge or if you believe in forgiveness there's the, both arguments there for you and you know that this story is an accurate model of both human nature and reality right so you can actually learn something from this but something yeah. that is not a mythological story that is ideological is you're only painting one half of the picture and a lot of stuff being made by netflix and hollywood including like the you know the star wars films for part you know partially for reasons that you outlined there um uh jacob uh it, it just paints one side of the picture that supports your ideological viewpoint of the world. But for half the audience or more that doesn't have that ideological viewpoint, they're like, this isn't an accurate model of human reality, of, of human behavior. I'm not going to watch this because I'm not going to learn anything about human nature from it. Right. Um, and so what that makes that is it's propaganda. It's not a mythological story. It's propaganda. But thank God, you know, the Northman is a classic example of a truly mythological tale. And that's why it's such a good story and such a broad audience will like it. And I think why it will be watchable over time, right? Uh, no matter what the politics well, yeah, it's, uh, of the time are. Yeah, it's timeless. Like uh, I saw something, you know, and we don't have to go down this rabbit hole at all, but with like the new Lord of the Rings uh, series coming out. Uh, but like one of the things I saw, like it was a really great comment about it. It was like what J.R.R. Tolkien made was timeless. What they're trying to make is modern and it appeals to yeah. modern qualities. Like, ideology. Yeah, modern ideology. Propaganda. Yeah, yeah. And it's like, uh, you know, looking back at the have -em all like the have -em all was written over a thousand years ago at minimum. And yet there are still so many things in there that are, you know, applied to today. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, like, just kind of like tying into that, that perspective of, of the, with the movie, you know, like early on when, um, I'm trying to remember, was it, it was with the, was it the Cirrus? Yeah, with the Cirrus when he first comes across her and she says, you know, it's, you are either going to choose love for your kin or hatred of your enemy. No, that was the uh, male, oh, was that it, was the that, male Cirrus. Oh, yeah, that's right. That in the cave I with Hamir's uh, head. Which, yeah, I couldn't remember which one it was off the top of my head. Um, but yeah, so, you know, he's given that, obviously, these two very definitive choices, mm. um, you know, and that's like where we have at the end where he could have obviously sailed away with, like you said, his super gorgeous, beautiful wife and his children and been you know what he would have thought as happy but then obviously that fear of fielder and his bloodline coming potentially after him later on or sacrifice you know just none of that it could have just gone straight with the revenge thing but instead he says he chooses both by basically setting up like you said his his you know his lineage and his story continuing on through his children but then also make ensuring that that lineage continues by following through with his hatred for his enemy 
Well, and he technically he made that choice uh, when he revealed himself after uh, killing his his half brother because they were about yeah. to kill her, uh, kill Olga, and mm -hmm. so and that he decides to pop out and save her, and so he yeah. actually made that choice. Then he chose uh, mm -hmm. love for his kin, love for his you know his future wife. That's and, a very good point. Yeah, so he had already made that choice, and he was on that path of destiny. So when he was on that yeah. boat, he thought he was already on that path of choosing his kin. But then he realized that he are, his kin is established, and now he can still have that revenge. Yeah. It'd be interesting, like, from Odin's perspective, if he had chosen to stay with his family. He's like, you know what? I'm going to stay with the family. I'm going to defend them. I'm going to, you know, be the bodyguard in case anybody comes after them. Would he still have gotten into Valhalla? You know, because it's apparent, it's clear, I think, at the end of the film, right, that he's going, he's getting into Valhalla, right, at the end of the film. Oh, yeah. And uh, it's like, but is it necessarily true that he would not have gotten into Valhalla if he had chosen to stay with her? Like, what do you guys think about that? Well, I'm going to go back to this entire movie as a conflict between Odin and Frere because mm -hmm. of the term hatred for your kin or love for your, uh, hatred for your enemies or love for your kin. Mm -hmm. uh, because hatred for your enemies is a very Odin thing. Love for your kin is a very fair thing right, so it's the conflict right. between the two mm. so i think odin wanted him to have revenge and i think frere frere's whole argument was love for the kin because ultimately fjolnir uh his his mother and their children were happy mm -hmm. and revenge they in were. odin is what killed them that's very interesting oh, shit, yeah. that's very yeah. interesting because it's so different in in um in norse paganism versus christianity where there's not such a clear delineation between good and good and bad or good and evil, right? Like Odin is a very complicated character. You know, he's selfish in many situations. He just wants fucking warriors for his hall, right? Mm -hmm. um, to prepare for Ragnarok and all that kind of stuff. So it's a, it's very interesting, you know? Um, it bring, raises several more questions, I think, making that, uh, outlining that, that frere versus love, you know, love for your kin versus hatred for your enemies thing. Um, now in my mind, it's like, it's not so clear that like, did he necessarily make the correct choice? Yeah. You know, did he make the correct choice? I'm just thinking on the fly. Like, yeah. uh, I, 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 I don't even know. I don't even know. I mean, if it was me, I would cho choose the, the hot wife and the children <laughs> in the <laughs> island. So that sounds pretty good to me. I don't want to fight butt-ass naked on the side of a volcano. Fuck that. You know? yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, but, but like kind of tying that in though too, like he did as a child, obviously swear that oath to his father, not obviously potentially knowing what he was getting himself into. Yeah, but he did, he did have to uphold an oath that he swore. So it goes into that, that, that idea of, of staying true to what you swear mm. to. That's true on the oath. That's true on the oath. Yeah, I forgot about that. Yeah, that, that's another factor. Because if you break that oath, then no bueno. No bueno. So, uh, there is one thing I will bring up after watching the second time. Uh, really, my only filmmaking critique, which is if this is like, or like story written critique. And if this is the only one, it's perfection. But when they decide they're going to run away, and they just magically show up on the shore when there's a boat there ready to take them away. Like that was, you know, for me, that was clearly written as plot convenience. They had no real explanation of why that boat was there at that specific time during that specific day. And while that, why they were accepted onto that boat. I thought that they did though, man, because in, in my mind, uh, the shipmaster was saying that like, we're picking up a, we're picking up Fjolnir or Fjolnir's son or something like that to take him to the Orkney islands. And he's like, well, where's Fjolnir's son? He's not here. He's like, yeah, he's not coming. So there, there was a reason why that, sh that ship was showing up. But are you saying they didn't know, like, how would they know that the ship was coming? But if they're their slaves, yeah. though, this is the thing. 
if they were the slaves in the, in the, in the community, they could have well known that that ship was coming. We were given no real illusions to why that boat was there. And that's my thing. Like everything else in the movie had backing, like even like yeah. when, you know, he kissed the wound, saw the tree, like the tree with the, the family line was referenced several times, even in the background, because there was a tapestry that had that tree with the family line on it. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so like, when a movie is so tight knit to me and so and everything references each other again, it seems like that, that I'm like, where did this boat come from? Yeah. Yeah. I, I can see that. I guess I can see that. I mean, it didn't, again, it didn't trigger anything for me. Uh, I don't think anyone else like, that is a very pretentious observation for me. <laughs> <laughs> well, the yeah, other thing yeah. I had to realize it could have been in the original script, but the way that the editing was done, which in a project like this, from my understanding, Eggers has said something about how, he didn't have 100% editorial control over it because the budget was so large. He said some of the editing was done for entertainment purposes and he didn't get to fully like have a full artistic control. So it may have like, Jacob, that that one loose end in your mind may have been actually tied up. Blame you know the I mean? editor, the, I uh... see how it <laughs> 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 know, so, so much of the time, right? Like the script, everything in the script does not necessarily end up on the screen, um, oh, yeah. you know, for, ver for various reasons. But again, I mean, if that was the only problem for you in the film, holy shit, man. That's right. a good yeah. problem if That's the one yeah. good thread on a fucking like perfectly woven shirt or whatever, like tapestry. Yeah. yeah. Tapestry. Yeah. Yeah. And that was cool. Actually, that one scene where actually the two slaves, I think, was it, were they bringing in a tapestry? Was it to the temple? in the new Icelandic settlement or something? No, it was just, it was just in their, their hof, like in their, their main hall. In the main hall. That was very interesting. Also to see, like, I want to see the next time I watch it, like what is on that tapestry? Because there might be some hidden, hidden uh, you know, imagery in there. Well, I'm assuming you, you've seen stuff. this uh, Midsummer, right? Obviously different no. director. You have not seen no. Midsummer. You should no, watch dude. Midsummer. You should watch it once. Really? Uh, you, you never have to watch it again after that because it's a really long suspense film. But yeah. that movie is perfection when it comes to alluding to future events. Like literally at dinner scenes, they will have murals in the background that are out of focus that literally reference things that happen later in the movie. Oh, shit. That's intense. Yeah. And like all the pictures and the very like when they're in like the um, normal American apartment, there's like paintings on the wall that they have in their apartment as art decorations all allude to later events. Interesting. Inter I'm going to have to watch that. Is that the kind of film to watch uh, on Magic Mushrooms uh, with a naked woman or? I mean, it makes you feel like you're on Magic Mushrooms. Yeah, because like the whole thing is like basically like a bad <laughs> trip because they do mushrooms throughout the movie. And it's uh, part of it's part of the surreal horror um uh, is the fact that they're tripping a lot of the time and so they see a lot of trippy stuff i mean you could trip on it but like good luck there's no need yeah no need. <laughs> i was uh I, I was joking with my friend that got us the tickets to this early screening here in canada and uh that like hey man i'm gonna bring uh you know half gram of mushrooms for us to, to watch it because wouldn't that be cool but uh i'm like nah you better watch it sober because you know you want the full impact of what the director was intending and all that kind of stuff and then halfway through it i'm like I'm so glad I didn't bring mushrooms because this thing's psychedelic <laughs> as fuck. Like there's absolutely no need for mushrooms whatsoever while watching that film because it's so freaking psychedelic. That's one of the other themes, you know, throughout the show is they, I know the very first kind of like, uh, I guess it was an Odin ritual that they're doing with Willem Dafoe's character, uh, mm -hmm. the court, court jester seer or whatever uh, in the original um, uh, kingdom. Uh, they were definitely using some kind of psychedelic there. I didn't see what they were putting into the drink, but I assume it was psilocybin mushrooms. And I'm I'm very curious. It would it would it be uh, Amarita Muscat? There's so many different kind of mushrooms, but when they essentially poison the soldiers in Fjolnir's new settlement, oh, yeah. and they're having a very bad that did not look like a psilocybin trip. Nor did the <laughs> mushroom she have, Anya Taylor Joy's character, in her hand. 
that did not look like a psilocybin mushroom either. And there's so many different mushrooms you can take, right, for uh, recreational purposes. And some of them give you terror, just pure terror in terms of the uh, the trips. So that could, is, was well, obviously- she put like six of them motherfuckers in there. Like, <laughs> yeah, she did not hold back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. for sure. But oh. I mean, like all, all the, psyched, the psychedelic theme like throughout the show was incredible, especially in the religious portions of it, um, to connect with the gods more, more strongly. It was very, very interesting. And uh, I'm going to take the second time going, I'm going to take my father because my father has never seen any Viking related stuff, right? And so for my mm-hmm. Thor's Outdoors, you know, c- camping and bushcraft show, doing, he's like, James, son, I don't like you doing magic mushrooms. That's that's a dirty drug, son. Like, don't, don't do that. I'm like, no, <laughs> father, you don't understand. Like, this is Thor's Outdoors, right? This is like pagan you know, Nordic stuff. It's like, you got to do it. It's part of the culture. And he's like, no, it's not. That's bullshit. So one of the reasons I want to take him is like, you see, you see father. <laughs> All I will say lot. is we have been able to achieve a lot without mushrooms, James. Like, Oh, no, doubt. We'll, we'll, no doubt. We'll, we'll, we'll have our gathering in Canada. We'll do it. No mushrooms at first for you. And we'll show you what we can do. Oh, no, 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 no. Well, it's like, it's like watching the movie, right? You don't need mushrooms at all. You don't need mushrooms at all. But I think it's very interesting um, that in a lot of the religious, you know, situations, they are using these aids because it just heightens the experience even further, right? It's like, it's not required, but it can, it can heighten things. And even for, you know, people that are maybe 50-50 in terms of believer or unbeliever or someone who's able to connect or not able to connect to the gods, it could be that little push even if it's a small dosage, right? It, it to takes, get them into that into that mind state. It's taken me like three years of meditation and trance work to get to the point where I can easily get into like a spiritual trance without any form of like psychedelic. And I, I, I haven't used that too much, but like uh, the Ohio gathering we just had, like uh, we were doing like a, kind of an intense ritual. It was the, the Ophindar ritual. And I was going to be there as kind of just like a, almost like a medium to kind of transcribe things that would happen. And so I just kind of went into a meditative like trance. And as they were doing things, I was getting imagery of what was happening and what how like things were reacting in the natural world. And then uh, myself, Ian and everyone else that was kind of observing, we all came together and like everything we all experienced and everything I was visualizing all came together and it was wild. Yeah, right on. when we all kind of came together and we were like, so, these three things that we saw, and you're like, you saw three things. So yeah, I saw three things too. And we, yeah, it was all right basically on. tied in. Yeah, but that's, like, I mean, that's not stuff. something that, you know, I flipped a switch and started doing that took me years to do. So I think mushrooms can definitely get you into that state right away. Cause mushrooms, you know, anyone that's done them, you close your eyes and you just start she and shit. Like, you know, <laughs> like you're just like, everything's visual as hell. Absolutely. And it, when you get the, again, with, when you're having, um, all of the garb, like Jacob, how you're dressed up your shamanic, uh, outfits, um, with the different, uh, like, uh, idol, you know, the, um, uh, the wooden, no, just like the, um, oh my God, what is the word? It's just the, uh, the representations of the gods, like yeah, you know, the wooden totems, gapos. totems, yeah. totems. Yes. Um, those kind of things when you're, ha- when you have the, I feel like you have the mushrooms and then you've got these visual indicators, it's going to direct your visualizations as well, right? To a certain, in certain directions. Well, yeah. As opposed to not having anything at all. Well, and part of my, uh, any uh, shamanic ritual I do is I have several things that assist me in the journey. And I basically call attention to those to each person in the audience that is there with us. So it's like, this is why I have this thing. This is why I have this thing. This is why I wear this thing. So they understand the different elements that are in play because they all assist in some different way. Right on, right on. And I think, I think another, um, uh, 
psychedelic portion of the movie was when they're doing the the Ulfhevnar, Ulfhevnar, the the, uh, the berserker um, ceremony, right? Early on yeah. in the second act, right? Because they're doing that, they're giving some kind of potion to the participants in that, are they not? I don't uh, think you visually see it. I, I don't, because like basically they start the scene uh, and they're already like fighting and then they have the main guy going around in the circle. Uh, yep. starting to do the incantation and then they all line up but they do all like kind of fall to their knees and then start howling and stuff like that so yeah i think it's inferred that they did and that's something that is heavily inferred throughout like the source material is that they did some form of psychedelic to get into that trance yeah. state yeah and I, I remember hearing i think it was i think it was a chemist or something like an like an like a paleo chemist talking about how it may have been henbane that they were giving mm. um uh berserkers and not mushroom because again mushrooms is like you don't want to go out and kill people when you're on mushrooms, but yeah. hey, Bane, you definitely aggressive. Hey, yeah, and then he just slits her throat. Oh, I'm gonna that, fucking eat your out. neck now, bro. <laughs> <laughs> Whoa, you it, taste like Jolly Ranchers, bro. Exactly. <laughs> no, it's, it's, it's not gonna happen. It's not gonna happen. But I mean, henbane, like people get fucking violent on that, right? Because I believe henbane yeah. is a type of mold that grows on rye or something like that. And people, you know, you have hallucinations, but it also makes you like angry and aggressive. So I'm just imagining very, someone very like. A music high. concert coming up, like, hey man, you want some headband? Like, <laughs> well, if it's we the friggin' uh, if it's the High Lung concert that we're going to in Minnesota later this year, then yes, I would like some headband. Oh, yeah, we need to review that. Have you gotten your ticket? You should get your ticket. If you no, I'm going to. I need to buy yeah, that today. Yeah, I, I would actually. Yeah, I mean, they're super fucking cheap. Do it. Um, and I think we're just gonna rent like an Airbnb and we're all gonna come back. Okay, there's quite a few of us that are gonna, yeah, I think there's like so. six of us now legit mm. i'll bring the henbane the canadian henbane. <laughs> <laughs> you guys I'll, can do uh, the henbane i'm out <laughs> uh, so, like with with like henbane so it, it, it is like a it's not a mold it's an actual like leaf it's a plant it's very common oh is it yeah oh, it's actually a very common okay. thing people probably walk by it all the time um no way it is it is very super harsh on your body mm -hmm. um if you know and just like it can legitimately kill you very easily yeah which yeah. is why obviously like it's not something that was you know obviously well i don't think it's not a uh, controlled substance is it no it's a wild it's a wild weed basically it's a wild plant that is common like in like my neck of the woods like northern minnesota like you probably find it in canada yeah um, it's, not, but, it's not illegal until the uh Rot, the high lung rot minnesota ride of 2022 but yeah what it what it does like after you when you use it like it yeah it does basically heighten your aggression level and gives you almost like a it makes your body numb to a lot of things so it cuts off a lot of i mean that would uh, make sense for like their immunity to, to swords exactly and stuff then like that. yeah it cuts off a lot of your pain receptors and stuff like that but the side effect is and they actually demonstrated pretty well in the movie is the level of exhaustion like you become basically canatonic for uh, multiple days potentially afterwards, afterwards. like yeah so Ooh. because you're apparently it loosens pushing... the digestive tract too so you probably shit your brains out probably that's a plus that was one thing that was kind of weird for me like with uh like i, I don't know why <laughs> they did it but like uh when hamir uh Wilma defoe's character comes up and he's like prove that you are not a pup and then he like oh, he burps in his face <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. Well, then, yeah like the kid like whips out a massive fart <laughs> that was good you know there was a few little bits of comedy and a comedic relief there was some other thing where where doesn't he go back there's something with someone's bum like he puts like a guy's head yeah, it's, in not, it's in the, uh, the oh, drogger the scene yeah yeah yeah, the, yeah. The where like it, there was a few people like there were laugh out louds in the theater they're like people were like oh, oh, oh. 
when that, when yeah, that, so that we, kind of thing was going down. Yeah. So we had talked about that with, uh, with our friend Blade, who we've had on the podcast and stuff before, and he, he had mentioned it and what that, that is, that is, that is a relatively common practice to insult your enemies uh, yes, is yes, yes, to yes. take their head like that and then basically make them kiss their own ass. Interesting. Yeah, yep. so it's a it's a very like disrespectful like insult to your enemies to do such a thing. So yeah, once they did that, I was just like, oh, they went they went there with that, you know. And today it's basically a drogger that you know like is essentially a supernatural creature with tremendous strength. You know, it adds even that much more insult that he defeated it than to wow. have shove its own face in his ass. And I thought yeah. it was like, you know, I think that would almost be like an honorable thing besides him being pissed off at it. You know, like, oh, wow, look yeah. at this cool fight. I just killed like an ancient king. You know, yeah. looks pretty cool. But no, like... <laughs> Insult. Yep. Face Insult in the ass. Injury. Oh, yep. and there was no hesitation either. Like, literally, he chopped the head off and like took a breath, grabbed it and shoved it in his ass like immediately yeah. afterwards. It's badass, man. Dude, I love, that was one of my favorite scenes, especially on second oh, watching. Totally. Like so visually just like beautiful and like the it was just you know the sound effects incredible bone chilling man watching it just like tingles you know goosebumps on the well and that's another thing you know back to like why i think every pagan should see this and why i think every everyone that wants to see it should see it in theaters is honestly the audio is worth it to see in theaters like the audio is so good like right from the very beginning where it's just like oh father i have a story to tell you know like 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 soon as that you're just like yeah <laughs> Absolutely. And the voice work by the actors is incredible. I mean, I don't know how much of that was live recorded. I mean, a lot now they do things something called ADR, which they're actually recording uh, you know, voiceovers afterwards. Cause it is hard to perfect audio, you know, on uh I know it's better to do it like you know, I think for emotions. Uh you know, on set, but sometimes if you want to perfect that voice, like, you know, Ethan Hawke is the king. Ethan Hawke didn't sound anything like any other characters he's ever played. And I was really surprised by that because also playing opposite, uh, uh, what's her name? Nicole Kidman, who is like six feet tall, you know, and Ethan Hawke's a tall guy too. He's like six feet or six foot one. But when your wife is that tall, I'm like, can he pull off the charisma to seem like the king besides such a powerful woman, such as Nicole mm-hmm. Kidman with such presence? And he just blew it out of the water. Like, I'm like, wow. And a big part of that, not only his stature, the way he's moving his body, his body language, all that stuff, but the way that he was talking, it was very, yeah. very powerful. And how a lot of the other characters, Willem Dafoe and the other Sears, uh, it just did a fantastic job, including Bjork, the swan dress lady as the Sears. Yeah. I had no idea until afterwards. I'm like, that was Bjork? I mean, she had so much makeup on. Who the fuck knew, right? But uh, yeah, that was one of the things that like I know a lot of people said, you know, and for me personally, I really wanted more Willem Dafoe and a lot of more people wanted a lot more Bjork because she literally only had one the scene and really Willem Dafoe only really had one scene. Yeah. Listen, no sane person would want more Bjork, okay, in anything, whether it's music <laughs> or film. I'm just kidding. Bjork is great. Bjork is great. Speaking of Icelandic people though, I could have sworn to the gods that that was Thor Bjornsson in that Icelandic hockey game thing. It was. Yeah, it was. I was going to fucking say, because like, who's that much taller than Alexander Skarsgård? Because Skarsgård yeah. is like, uh, you know, 6'3", and this guy's a fucking giant. Like, is that Thor Bjornsson? Yeah, yeah, yeah it was. That scene, like, honestly, I was really hyped for that scene because I did a video on Viking Age Sports like a few months ago, and I found that yeah. support, and like, people were trying to like figure out how they played it. And like, soon as I, I honestly can't remember the name, but it's like, soon as I saw it, I was like, holy shit, it's the sport of sticks. <laughs> and yeah like it was that violent yeah. and it was often played all day like they literally would play it from like dawn to dusk oh that's insane God, that's savage 
I'm that going back and forth in my mind of whether that should be branded as Viking hockey or Viking Quidditch, you know, from it's like almost, Harry Potter. It's almost like lacrosse. It's like an early version of lacrosse. Oh, no, it's, it's like, like uh, lacrosse. what's that? Uh, oh man, I can't remember the name. What's the Irish sport? The Irish. Uh... Cur- uh, curling. Curling. No. That's what it is. Hurling. No, it's not. No? Uh, curling is Canadian. Curling. Uh-huh. Not curling. Hurling. Curling. It's I'm looking it up right now. You hit a stick. You oh, hit, it is hurling. Okay. Stick. That's curling. Yeah. yeah, hurling. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, because yeah. hurling dates back uh, to 1200 I, BC. Yeah. So they they were very similar, but they have to wear helmets and they have safety because <laughs> <laughs> they don't want to they don't want to die. Oh man, that scene where Skarsgård is caving in for Bjornsson's head with his headbutts. Yeah. Woo. <laughs> yeah. Holy shit, man. That was awesome. How um, funny was it though that like his like little bitch ass half brother like tried to like be like a man to him and like punched him in the side oh, that one scene. It didn't even move him. <laughs> yeah, he was like, he shut up, slave. That was awesome. <laughs> yeah. He's just like staring at it, like okay. So I know like having looked at the cast, uh Bill Skarsgard is in it as well. I was looking for him last time. Oh, I never saw him. Yeah. And I've been trying. Yeah, I think the second when I watch it again, I'm going to try to because I mean he had to be a background character. Yeah, because he doesn't have a character name necessarily. Like he's not like it is not like a character name for him when you look it up. But he is in it, so there's at least. Is it just like when they like he probably is like has a helmet on or something like that? Probably. Yeah, but it's kind of funny that like brad pitt was a stormtrooper in star wars and that kind of stuff you know what i mean Wait, like he, he, yeah yeah i mean there's like celebs that you know oh. were stormtroopers uh, you, you never see them that's why daniel craig was in star wars and he was a stormtrooper yeah that's amazing. You, it's like yeah you can barely hear his voice weird. and then uh what, like simon Pegg is in uh star wars as well but he's like a like an alien and his voice is distorted so you can't even tell so it's like <laughs> like i wish i could yeah. get paid probably a few thousand dollars to have a distorted voice for 15 seconds yeah, seriously. Well, it's like some celebs, you know, being White Walkers on uh, in Game of Thrones, something like that. Um, but uh, oh, yeah. lads, I actually have to go. It's coming up on one thirty here. Do do could we could we do a wrap up? Um, yeah, yeah. Unless you guys want to keep going, then by, by all means. No, no, we can do a wrap up. We're over the hour mark now. Uh, and also, Bill Skarsgård dropped out of the movie. He's not actually in it. He was oh, supposed he to be. Uh, all right, cool. Well, everyone, we got to wrap this up because we've been talking over an hour as I predicted. But uh, I hope you enjoyed this episode uh, of the podcast and enjoy the video podcast uh, and enjoyed having James back on here. Make sure you're checking out his episodes, Thor's Outdoors. He's got another one up. Uh, he's got got a helmet. I mean, look at that. That's credibility right there. Uh, so thank you, everyone, for joining <laughs> us for this episode. Uh, and yeah, just make sure you follow us on all those good platforms and go see Northman because it's a really good movie. And I hope we've been really, really able to convince you on this not spoiler free podcast to go see this movie (laughs) Uh, so everyone thank you all very much and until the hall skull 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 praise Odin (laughs) 